there are a lot of things that we can give credit and thanks to Thomas Edison for. Brother Thomas Edison, you have writers up your head to see your copy of God's Word this morning. He is the inventor of the incandescent light bulb. He also invented the telegraph. So messages can go from one continent to another. He invented the photograph, which hard to believe that in 2020 record players are popular again. He invented the microphone, so you're able to hear me this morning. I read about Charles Spurgeon, who pastored over in the early, late 1800s, and how he preached in an auditorium full of people with no microphone. And blown away by that thought we have a microphone so we can be heard. He also invented the movie picture, the camera that makes movies. And so we have all this technology that we can thank him for. And the thing is, is he's not as known for what he made, but his attitude when things didn't work. He's more known about how he dealt with failure. There was a while he was trying to create a storage battery. He tried 10,000 times to get it to work. And someone asked him about that. And they asked God, Thomas Edison, said, are you a failure? And this is what he said. I have not failed. I have just found 10,000 ways that it didn't work. That's a positive attitude, isn't it? But to try something 10,000 times, I mean, we're going to be honest this morning. Don't raise your hand. But how many of you give up after three times? After ten times? You know, how many of you start getting frustrated with a project and start calling it names? Ten thousand times we try to make this story better and work. And he doesn't give up. Whether well, it's a story about an incident that takes place and we see his determination. On December of 1914, 10 years after he'd been trying to make this battery, this storage battery work, something happened. There was a fire at the factory where this project was taking place, and they said this fire was something like it had never been seen before. It was bad enough that the fire spread. They had to call eight different town fire departments to put out the fire. Eight different units had come throughout this fire. But the story is that it was a massive fire. It consumed the building. It was so bad that all the firefighters could do was stand and watch. There was no hope of saving the building. There was no hope of saving anything inside the building. Everything would be lost. While the fire is taking place, one of the people who's watching this building burn to the ground is Thomas Edison's son, Charles. And as he's watching his building burst to the ground, it dawns on him that nobody has seen his dad. And nobody knows where Thomas is. They feel confident that he was nowhere in the building. He was probably on one of the walks, but nobody has seen him yet. Well, the story goes that suddenly Thomas Edison is running towards the building as it is on fire. And Charles sees him running. And this is what Thomas yells out at his son. He says, where is your mom? Go get her and tell her friends they have never seen a fire like this. They've never seen anything like this before, ever. The story goes on the next day. He brings all the people together. And he says, yes, we've had a fire to destroy everything. 
not going to stop us. So he starts delegating responsibilities to individuals as to how can we move forward? How can we rebuild? He gives this great speech, and at the end of the speech, he makes the statement, oh, by the way, does anyone know where we can get some money? It's about having a positive attitude. Another comment he was made to say was this. He said, you can always make capital out of disaster. We just cleared out a bunch of old rubbish. We will build bigger and better on the ruins. That was the attitude of Thomas Edison. He has lost everything. He is in financial ruin. At the time of the fire, he was in his late 60s, 70s. He invested everything. It's all gone. And his mindset is, you know, we can rebuild. Legend has it after he gave this rousing speech and he encouraged his employees to go and let's rebuild. Then he took off his coat, he found a table, and took it down. I said, How do you want We read these stories and think, Man, that is some optimism. Man, that is just an amazing thought. He loses everything but says, You know what? We can rebuild. But this morning, let me ask you a question. What would happen this morning is you're, you're driving down your street and all of a sudden you see fire trucks. You see a cloud of black smoke coming over the trees. You turn in the corner and you realize that all these fire trucks are at your house watching the burn. What would your attitude be this morning? Would your attitude be that of optimism or discouragement? Because how we handle opposition, how we handle disturbance, says a lot about us. Thomas Edison sees fire trucks, he sees his building going in flames, and his reaction is we can rebuild. <coughs> or we can see things falling apart around us, and we can have a reaction of Job's wife, who looks at her husband and says, Curse God and God. He's lost all his children, he's lost his livelihood, he's lost his health. And we read that passage in Genesis about Job losing everything. And we read that statement that his wife makes. But have you ever wondered for a moment, have we been too hard on Mrs. Job? She stands there and tells her husband, curse God and die. What we tend to forget is that she experienced the same things he's just experienced. She too has lost her children. She too has lost income. She too has lost a business. She has suffered the same things that he has suffered. She has lost children. She has lost her security. And for all she knows, she can lose her husband. And so she makes that statement, curse God and die. But remember what Job says to her? He says over in Job chapter 2, and again, in verse 20, it says, Shall we indeed accept good from God, and shall we not accept adversity? He said, The Lord gives, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. If you and I were to be honest at this moment right now, we would probably not respond like Job, but we would respond like Mrs. Job. When we are dealing with difficulty, when we are dealing with discouragement, when we have something that comes up, what is our initial reaction? It's to be like Mrs. Jones. If you don't believe me, think about how you would respond. 
respond to these situations for just a second? How would you respond to these life-altering events? How would you respond to losing your job? How would you respond to a missed promotion? How would you respond to a divorce? How would you respond to the death of a loved one? Would you be optimistic or would you be pessimistic? Would you see this as a chance for God to do something great? Or would you want to wall away and say, why God? Because this morning, the reminder is that we all deal with discouragement. I can easily ask you this morning, how many of you came here this morning discouraged? And I would have to hand them up. Because we all deal with discouragement. We all wrestle with it. But I'm going to remind you this morning, it's the first statement in your outline. Discouragement is like a disease eating away at the hope in your heart. Discouragement is like a disease. And it will take away any hope you have in your heart. We sing a song, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We sing it because the hope we have in Jesus Christ. But when the enemy allows discouragement to come in, what happens to that hope? And it's pick apart. And it's chewed at. And sometimes that hope can disappear. And if discouragement is persistent, it becomes resistant to any encouragement we can get from others. But this morning, I am thankful we have a Savior who walks beside us as we move from the mountain of discouragement to hope. Or discouragement to peace. No, it is discouragement to hope. That mountain is wrong. But doesn't peace come with hope? But hope is what we need today. But we're wrestling with discouragement. And we all deal with it in some way and shape and form. So as we work through this message this morning, let me give you discouragement a definition. Let me give you discouragement as a definition this morning. Because we need to know what discouragement is so we can work past it and get through it. Webster defines discouraged as to deprive of courage or confidence or to be disheartened. That's how the dictionary describes discouragement. The New Testament uses three different words for discouragement. They all have the same basic meaning to be disheartened, dispirited, or discouraged. But I think we can add some other D words to this list this morning. How about demoralized? How about dismayed, distraught, depressed, defeated, despairing? We all experience these in some way and form. We feel like when these realities come into our life, our life has been hijacked. Because we've lost the hope we have, the security we have because of the discouragement we are dealing with. Listen, if you want to talk about discouragement, go back to 2020. Talk about discouragement. 2020, when the year started, we were not sure what God was going to do. Didn't have a clue what God had in store for us. As individuals, we didn't know what was going to take place. But think about everything we endure because of that virus we know as COVID-19. We were discouraged. We had no hope. 
We had no encouragement. We dealt with things we didn't think we were going to deal with. We looked at the disease. We didn't know how it quite worked. We were sheltered in home. Let me tell you about sheltering in home. Listen, we love our families. But after about a week and a half, you would like to find a new family. Let me tell you about discouragement. So the week that everything decided to shut down, that week, Rachel got her driver's license. The next day, she got her student pass to go park in the parking lot. She was happy. She could drive her car to school. And how many days did she do that? Once. She got to use that parking pass one time. And how much did you pay for it? Three dollars for one time in the high school parking lot. Talk about this courage. But think about the things we dealt with in 2020 that led to this discouragement. Businesses shut down. Our church shut down. We had to figure out how to wear a mask. And let's be honest, in 2020, we'd rather have worn our mask like this. Because we didn't know what was taking place. Schools shut down. We closed our doors for 12 weeks. Mental health skyrocketed. It wasn't physical issues people were dealing with. It was mental issues people were dealing with. There was even a concern and statistics show an increase in domestic violence during this time. People were panicking. There was confusion. And as this thing has gone on for months and months and now years and years, people have become discouraged and immortalized, wondering whether life will ever go back to normal. Let's be honest, that feels normal right now. With everything that's taking place. So it's easy to see why we're discouraged. But this morning, I want to give you some causes of discouragement. Because it can't just be a virus that causes discouragement. So let me give you some causes for discouragement this morning. Because discouragement is always the result of some cause. There's something that will always trigger discouragement. So let me give you a few of these this morning. The first one is this, unresolved anger. It has been said that depression can be turned into anger. Think about how you deal with anger. You vent, you blow up at whoever or whatever happens to be in front of you at the moment. Whatever part of the day you're experiencing that anger comes out. Sometimes others are at fault for this anger, but most of the time you and I are at fault for our anger. When it's others, we may not feel like that person cares for us or loves us, so our anger comes out. And so what we do, we either let out the anger or we bottle it up. But I realize that when our problems are a result of our own simple sinfulness and foolishness, that's where our anger tends to get a little bit stronger. We're angry for reasons we have no reason to be angry about because we've stored it up in our hearts. We've let it out. So one of the causes for discouragement is unresolved anger. And if you and I, if we don't deal with our anger, whether directed at another person, a situation, or ourselves, discouragement can flood into our lives like water from a broken pipe. 
Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. 
If I have it a purpose, it throws strength of mind and muscle to your work as God has given you. If you want to avoid discouragement, find your purpose. Don't wander around aimlessly. Don't try to set for yourself standards you know are impossible to meet. And we are guilty of doing that. We are guilty of raising our personal bar so high because we know we can't get there. We want to try to get there. We desire to get there. But it's so far out of reach we get discouraged and tend to give up. Yet that's another reason why we are discouraged because we're aiming for the wrong thing. Here's another reason for discouragement. And I'm sounding like a broken record with this one. Unrepented guilt. Unrepented guilt. A number of weeks ago we talked about the difference between true guilt and false guilt. Your false guilt or misplaced guilt is a tool that Satan uses to convince us that our past sin, though we have confessed them to God and been forgiven of them by God, are not really forgiven and God still holds us accountable for our sin of yesterday. That is false guilt. That is false guilt a tool that Satan uses. And because Satan uses this deception, he shows us that sin isn't turned over to God like it should be. He says you can take it, still hold on to it, still wrestle with it. But when we truly repent, when we truly come before God the Father, and we repent of our sin, He is true to forgive us. He is true to give us His righteousness. But if we think this is a false guilt, if we think this is a false giving of our sin to God, we're going to be discouraged. And because of that guilt, you and I wrestle with because we won't give thanks to God. Because we won't give our lives and our hearts to God and turn our sin completely over to God. We cry out like David does in Psalm 32, verse 3. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. We have a Satan, a devil, an evil one who uses false guilt. The sins you and I have already confessed, he throws them in our face and makes us relive them and puts us in a tailspin. But the first step is we repent of our sin just like David did. And then we must remember that God has cast our sin into the depths of the sea and remembers them no more. Because we serve a God who forgives us, a God who loves us. Another cause of discouragement is unrelenting grief. Unrelenting grief. Being separated by a loved one because of death, distance, other situations can lead to unrelenting grief. And it's normal to feel the struggle when we're separated from those we love. Remember when Jesus stood at the tomb of Lazarus, his friend? Scripture says he stood at the tomb and he cried because his friend was gone. The scripture says that he wiped that tear away and he brought his friends back to life. 
when I think about unrelenting grief, I'm reminded that activity is a great antidote for discouragement and depression. Yes, losing someone is difficult, whether by distance or death, losing someone is difficult. And it's easy to slide into this idea of depression and guilt. But notice what Jesus does at the tomb. Jesus stands at that sealed tomb of his friend Lazarus, who's been in the grave for four days. Scripture says he wept. He had his time of emotion. He had his time of sorrow. But then he stands there and tells Lazarus to come forth. Moving from death to life. And once Lazarus comes alive, we see the joy that takes place. When I'm thinking about this unrelenting guilt, or grief rather, this unrelenting grief, Psalm 30 verse 5 is an encouragement. It says, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes where? In the morning. Yes, you and I will weep for the night of joy comes in this morning. Here's one more cause of discouragement. And if we're honest, a lot of us are feeling this one today. Unrestrained infirmities. In other words, you're getting old. And your body is telling you. Listen. How many of you do not raise your hand? But how many of you can get up in the morning and nothing is creaking and popping and snapping? Not a lot. And we are discouraged by this. We are discouraged when we look in the mirror and we count more gray hairs than we had the other day. <coughs> We're discouraged when we stand on the scale. We're discouraged when we go to the button our bridges. Because these are things that we can control to a point. And guess what? We can't control them anymore. We get disturbed by them. If you don't believe them, take out all the hair color from the store. See how fast the scourge can keep doing. Because we have no control over these things. So we become disturbed. But it's not just that. Eyesight starts changing. The hearing starts to go. Our hands shake. Our knees wobble. And that's just for those of us who concern addiction. And in all these laughs, we're coming from, I'm telling you. This thing is, is all these areas can lead to depression. Having to wear glasses can lead to depression. Having to put devices in your ears so you can hear better can lead to depression. Getting up in the morning and having to shake out your knees so we need to make sure it's still operating correctly can lead to depression. These are things you have no control of. Yes, you need help here and you do all things you're supposed to, but you can't stop the aging process. Yet that leads to disturbance. So we give you a definition. I've given you some examples of disturbance. Let's spend the majority of our time looking at a drama starting to serve Take a copy of God's Word, turn to Nehemiah chapter 4. And this morning, this is where we're going to be for the remainder of our time. Nehemiah chapter 4. 
You know this passage of Scripture. You know how to find it. We spent the first 13 weeks of the year in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah reminds us of a lot of things, but chapter 4 specifically tells us how to get over discouragement. We know the situation in chapter 4. There's a conspiracy. If you look at me in chapter 4, verse 8, we see the conspiracy. Chapter 4, verse 8. All of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. Remember, there were those outside the city of Jerusalem who were upset that Nehemiah had come back to rebuild the wall. There were those who were upset that the people were working. There were those who were upset that anything was taking place. And so they did everything in their power to be a disturber to people. And they were doing everything they could to halt the process of building that wall. But notice that the attacks weren't physical, they're verbal. And the attacks were so severe that their verbal attacks that they could not handle it. Those who were building, so they become discouraged, they become disheartened. Listen, that's why you and I need people in our lives who will encourage us with their word. Galatians 4, verse 6 says, Grace seasoned with salt. We need people in our lives who will encourage us. What we're going to see in our time this morning, just real quickly, is how Nehemiah was an encourager. Nehemiah had the task of encouraging the people to move forward as there were whispers of people against him in the rebuilding of the wall. And what you're going to see this morning is just as the children of Israel are discouraged in this building project, you and I can be discouraged. But this morning, I want to show you what was taking place with the discouragement and how what we see this morning is applicable for us. So in this drama on discouragement, here's what we see. We see that the people were drained. The people were drained. This Lombardi head coach, the Green Bay Packers, made this statement. Fatigue makes cowards of us all. Fatigue makes cowards of us all. And Nehemiah observed this. Jump down to me in verse 10. Verse 10 of chapter 4. Then Judah said, The strength of the laborers is failing. And there is so much rubbish that we are not able to fill the wall. It said their strength is failing. The Hebrew word for failing is hasal, which means to stumble, to stagger, to totter. For 52 days they have been backbreaking in their labor, but the walls only halfway completed. They had a mind to work, but they are physically and emotionally drained. And they look around and they see that the rebuilding is going to be a little bit harder than they have anticipated. How many of you have ever been in a home renovation project before? You know, it's all fun and games you take a wallpaper down. It's all fun and games you move that part of the wall and you find out what's hiding behind you. And think about it. We've all done with this before. We've started a renovation project in our homes and man, we're excited when we first get started. I'm going to change this, I'm going to change that, we're going to do this, we're going to move this over here, we're going to put that there. And man, you start off 
full speed ahead if you get the first hit. You get the second one. Or you hire out the project and they start working on it. And they tell you, oh, it'll take about three weeks. Four months later, you're trying to figure out where the three weeks went. But we have those problems because there are unforeseen things that take place that can cause discouragement and they can cause our excitement to be drained. We become tired of looking at the work. We become tired of looking at the tools everywhere. And the people are the same way. Again, look at verse 10. It says their strength of the laborers is failing. They've been working, but they can't handle it anymore. The excitement has turned to discouragement. And it's at moments like this, we need a new source of hope. We need a new source of encouragement to keep us going. But not only are the people drained, the people were also disgruntled. They're disgruntled. Again, look at verse 10. It says in the New, in the new King James, there is so much rubbish. There is so much rubbish. If you live with teenagers, Nehemiah 4.10 may become your life first. If you live with teenagers, you know what rubbish looks like. If you live with teenagers, you know what it's like to see a pile of clothes that can't find their way to the hammer. And the mountain just grows. And I know none of you have ever experienced this. The old clean up your room, and if you're the oldest of three brothers, that may be bigger than the closet. We just find until what? We open the door. And all of a sudden, Mount Closius comes out at you. But the people look around them and they say, there's so much rubbish. There's so much stuff here. How are we going to get through? How are we going to continue moving forward? And because of that, they become disgruntled. Yes, a good portion of the wall is finished, but there's so much rubbish lying around, so much trouble, broken brick, mortar, debris everywhere. And we see that phrase, there is so much. In the New American Standard, it uses the word, yet there is much. And it's that, that connecting idea of, yes, the reason the world is failing, the reason that the workers are disgruntled, the workers are trained, because they look around and they're building a wall, yet there's still stuff everywhere. And so they're dealing with this emotion. They're accomplishing great work, yes, but they look around and see all the stuff still around them, and there's no encouragement. But there's something else we see in this verse. Yes, the people, they're drained, they're disgruntled, but they're also dejected. The people are dejected. Yes, the labor is failing. Yes, there is a lot of rubbish. Look at the end of verse 10. It says that we are not able to build the wall. They are physically and emotionally drained. And you couple that with an attitude of being disgruntled is a recipe for dejection. They are dejected. They are weary people who are now a whining and through the heart of their work, they're beginning to complain. They're complaining because it's too hard. We thought it was easy, Nehemiah. We thought we could handle this. But there's unfinished walls and 
perspective. Yet here's the problem. You and I look at our life and we make the statement, look at the rubble in my life. Look at the rubble in my life. Then we can change and say, my life stinks. Look at the rubble, my life stinks. We become more dejected. And that dejected spirit leads to this statement. I can't do this. I can't do this. And it all becomes discouraging. Every one of those statements is what we see in verse 10. In verse 10, we see those three statements. And here's another issue for the people. The people were distressed. The people were distressed. We look at verses 11 through 12, and we see why they're distressed. It says in verse 11, our adversary said they will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. So it was then the Jews who dwelt here came and they told us ten times from whatever place you turn, they will be upon you. All the Israelites can see is the stressful future. They're told ten times. You're not going to see it coming, but it's coming. Ten times they're saying and told, watch your back. Ten times they're being discouraged from completing the work God had done for them. Threats, warning, gossip, whispers are all spirit killers. And criticism can contaminate the most courageous heart. So let me ask you this this morning. Are you dealing with a critic in your life right now? Are you dealing with someone who is criticizing you? Perhaps it's like the drip of a faucet, that criticism. You know those faucets? They just drip and it drips and it drips and it drips. They become irritating. They become aggravating. You can't stop the drip. That's what criticism does. That's what discouragement comes from. When people tell you they can't do it, when your co-worker says you're not good enough. When the teacher says you're not smart enough. When the coach says you're not fast enough. It's those words of discouragement. And think about it. We realize we're like the children of Israel. We become distressed because of the criticism. But criticism is only one form of a negative talk. There are people who will prey on our fears by talking about our future. What are your plans? What are you going to do in your life? Think about the student who's in college who's worried about what they're going to put their degree in. Think about a parent who worries about sending their kid to college and worried that that child's going to come back home from college and move into the household. Those are things they worry about. What about a child who worries about her, a parent who worries about her, their child's future security? The person they're going to spend the rest of their life with, the job they're going to have, to help make them successful and help provide for their family. We worry about all these things. And we let that worry overtake our lives. And it's the sin of consumption and it's from surrendering to stuff instead of to God. Yet James chapter 4 verse 17 says, To him therefore who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. You and I know what we're called to do. We know what we 
children of Israel knew the task to rebuild the wall. Yet there's criticism from all sides. And their future is uncertain. So what is the path from discouragement to hope? What is the path from discouragement to hope? Because we have just read in these few verses that the people are discouraged. You've got people talking about it. You've got people whispering about it. Not once, not twice, but ten different times are talking about what they might do to them. So God sees fit to put a foreman in the job of leading the people. Nehemiah is the encourager. Nehemiah is going to help them on this journey. But here's the reminder, church. You cannot ignore discouragement. You cannot ignore discouragement and assume it's going to magically disappear. Let's be honest. A flat tire remains flat no matter how much you pray. It's going to stay flat until you do what? Change it. Once you change it, then things get better. But I can't look at a flat tire and say, man, I hope everything's in it. I can't look at a flat tire and say, I hope it repairs myself. No. But that's what discouragement does to us. So when we're doing that, we need to pray. We need to come to the Father. We need to ask Him to reinflate our lives and reinflate our heart to focus on Him. So very quickly, let me show you this path. From discouragement to hope. It starts with this. Find encouragement in your family. Find encouragement in your family. This morning, if you're wrestling with discouragement, you need to turn to your family first. And have them be your encouragers. Family and friends are those who are going to encourage you. When the people grew disheartened in the work in front of them, he fixed it. Verse 13 says he put family units together to complete the work. Nehemiah saw the need of putting family first. And he puts them together to complete the task at hand. But notice in verse 13, he positions the families together with everything they need. Their sword, their spears, and their bows. Their weapons they needed, he put them together because he realized that they needed someone to stand up for them. They needed someone to stand in their place. A parent is responsible for protecting their children. That is a parent's job. As I've watched Rachel grow up, I've been her protector. One day, she's going to move out. And I'm still going to be her protector. Just because she doesn't live in my house doesn't mean I stop protecting her. If a boss, if an individual, if anyone, I don't care who it is, a boss, a dishonest repair person, I don't care what it is, if something comes to harm my wife or my daughter, you can bet I'm going to stand in the gap. Because that's my job as a father and a husband. My calling is to be the encourager for them when they face discouragement. That's part of the job, part of the task. And that's what Nehemiah reminds us here. When you're feeling discouraged, you go to your family 
But you also got to remember, God is on your side. Look at what Nehemiah says about God in verses in verse 14. He says to remember the Lord is great and awesome. He had to remind the people that were dealing with the spirit that, listen, you have a God who is great and awesome. A God who loves you. A God who's going to protect you. He did not bring you this far. He didn't bring you out of Babylonian captivity to die in this place. He's brought you here to rebuild the wall. He's brought you here to encourage you in what you succeed. Listen, when you and I are discouraged, the best place to go for encouragement is God's word. You want to be encouraged? Start here. Don't start here. Listen, if you want to stay discouraged, you stay on social media. If you want to stay discouraged, you keep watching Fox News and CNN. That's not the source for encouragement, church. The source for encouragement is God's Father is great and awesome, and that source comes from His Word. Yes, I need family in my life to help me when I'm discouraged. But I need to remember God is on my side. And I'm beside them. Yes, amen. You're okay, Captain. If the only God is on your side, it's like no. Show them a video of you and who God was. For you and for me, to know God is on your side, you have to know the Father through His Son. So we're encouraged with family, we're encouraged with God. Here's another problem we see in Scripture. Do the work God has given you. Do the work God has given you. Verses 15 through 18. Yes, they are discouraged, but the Nehemiah reminds them, you have a job to do. You have a task in front of you. And he talks about this. He talks about carrying another one burden, but completing the task. You had a tool in one hand. You had a weapon in the other hand. You finished the work that God had for you. That's how you move from the mountain of discouragement over to hope. God has given every one of us in this room a job and a task to serve Him, to tell others about Jesus Christ. That is our job, that is our calling. We see that in Scripture. We see that through this, He's encouraging them to finish the job. Look at verses 17 and 18 for just a second. And look what Nehemiah says here. He says, Those who build on the wall and those who carry burdens loaded themselves so they could they worked like construction, and with the other hand, they held a weapon. Every one of the builders had a sword burned to his side as he built, and one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. They had the necessary tools to finish the job. Isn't that a picture of a Christian life? God has given us the tools we need to finish the task. Doesn't the Father call us to walk by faith and not by sight? So we do the work he has given us. We don't let discouragement put us down. We don't let discouragement drive us from the task at hand. Because we are fueled by faith to finish the work God has given us. The notice what else this path enlists. It says enlist others to help you. That's how you move on this path. You get others to help you. Listen, being a believer in Jesus Christ is not a solo event. Jesus doesn't save you to be by yourself. He saved you to be in fellowship with other believers. 
Bible studies. So you're not alone on this journey. Notice Nehemiah doesn't say, you know what, I can rebuild the wall by myself this morning. No, he enlists others that help. Look at verses 19 and 20. He said, Then I said to the nobles, the rulers, and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated far from one another wall. Whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally unto us there, our God will fight for us. He's reminding them, listen, you have to have others involved. I love what Solomon tells us in Scripture. Solomon says, though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Ecclesiastes 4, 12. Solomon also says in Proverbs 17, 7, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. You need others to walk on this journey of faith with you. When you're facing adversity, when you're facing discouragement, when your heart begins to sink, you need to have others to walk beside you. You need that friend to pick you up. You need that family member to encourage you. You need to go back to that scripture where you find hope, you find peace, you find encouragement. We see Nehemiah doing this. Here's one more. Nehemiah says that we're to serve another person in need. Serve another person in need. Every one of us should be looking for an opportunity to serve someone else. No matter what that looks like. There was a sign at a gas station, a self-service gas station. The sign said this. We will crawl under your car oftener and get ourselves dirtier than any of our competition. We laugh at that, but think about that for a second. What am I willing to do to serve others? What am I willing to do to show people Jesus Christ? What am I willing to do to be an encourager to someone else? Listen. The greatest thing you'll ever do is walk beside someone there in their time of distress, their time of discouragement, and be an encourager in some small way. I have one more thought I want to share with you. I want to show you and give you a word of encouragement for the disturbed. I want to give you a word of encouragement for the disturbed. On July 15, 2017, I stood behind this sacred desk to a homeowner's service for a church building. And I thought about the message this week. And I even shared with a few people I was struggling with. Yes, Nehemiah is a great encourager. But who's someone that has walked in our path and been encouraged? And I wrestled with this. Because there are some people in our church who I consider encouragers. This one individual was one of the strongest encouragers in my life and many of your lives. And I did their funeral service on July 7th, July 15th, 2017. That person was Miss Ann Finley. Miss Ann Finley was the epitome of encouragement. Miss Ann would stop whatever she was doing. She walked over and said, hey, let me share something with you. We pray about something. She would stop everything crazy. She always had a smile on her face. She was not only an encourager in our church, but she was an encourager by serving as an interpreter 
You need the Father to walk alongside you. You need the encouragement of other believers to walk alongside you. My prayer is that you will move from the mountain of discouragement that only starts with knowing the Savior as your Lord. Father, as we move into this time, Father, speak to hearts. Father, move in the lives of men. Most importantly, we pray for your will Father, stand in this Speak to us. Praise the judgment. Amen. Amen.